Welcome back to another episode of Sketch Nerds, where we break down sketch comedy. What works, what doesn't work, what we like, what we don't like, and why. Today, we're going to be discussing sketches from Rowan Atkinson Live and a bit of Fry and Laurie. You can find information about this podcast, as well as the sketches we are going to be discussing at badmedicinecomedy.com slash sketchnerds. Joining me as co-hosts today are Julian Morgan. Hello, hello. Seth Alcorn. Hi. And Elizabeth Kemp. Hello. I'm Andy Weld, and today we are very happy to have on as a guest... J.P. McCallie. I kind of punted yep, on your name. That's I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. Why don't you say your name for the J.P. McCallie. That's yeah. cl- I was close. It's pretty close. I, I think we do need to address the fact that you've now been a member of Bad Medicine for a while, and none of us, none of us knew what your name was. Yeah, I know. It's it's a little embarrassing for you guys. It's a jumble of vowels. <laughs> I, 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 wish, I wish that both of us had been here last week when a sketch would have been very appropriate for this commentary that we were having right now. But, yeah. And which sketch did we yeah, talk about was, last week? That was What's the Name? Oh, yes. Yeah. yes. Oh, that was either hey. last week or two weeks ago. We're not sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, JP, can you tell us about your background in comedy? Sure, sure. So uh, I started out a bit of a theater kid. Um doing mainly straight plays, but I always went for kind of the character actor character actor role, um, usually like the comedic role. And it became to the point where I'm like, okay, I love theater, but I also kind of want some, some comedy in my life where it's just comedy. So um, in college, I got involved with stand-up comedy originally, and I do maybe one or two stand-up sets a year. And um, when I graduated, I started doing open mics. But I just wasn't really, I don't know, stand-up is pretty solitary and pretty lonely and I just missed the vibe of having like working with people and having a team behind me um so yeah that led me of course to improv comedy started doing improv in the DC area taking classes and then I missed having lines um (laughs) memorizing lines I'm like wouldn't it be great if I could have sort of the um you know the rehearsals and the lines um that you have in theater but also the comedic aspects you get in um, improv comedy or stand-up and the writing aspects you get in um, stand-up. So that, of course, led me to sketch comedy. And I've been performing sketch comedy for two, three years, um, a little over a year and a half, about a year and a half with Bad Medicine. Oh, Bad Medicine. um, Which is... uh, this very group that doesn't know my name. Well, um, <laughs> I mean, we've all I know seen your it first name down. is James, James, <laughs> James Patrick, JP. So I've been performing with these guys, and it's been great. Kind of going on tour, um, getting to perform in New York, Chicago, and uh, it's been real fun just to write and perform for different audiences. That's sort of my comedic. So you background. talk about liking having lines in sketch comedy is that so you've written some sketches as well do you like the writing aspect as well so i do like the writing aspect but i find it difficult to like produce a lot of material quickly i'm more someone who will have an idea will write an entire sketch in like 20 minutes and then it'll be like six months later and then i'll have my next idea and write it i think i'm really more in it for like acting and um, i like acting on stage reacting to the people I'm working with and it's kind of I enjoy writing my material because then you know I could always create a character I know I could have fun with but when you're with a group as talented as Bad Medicine you there's quite a lot of material out there that's uh, kind of fun to work with so so you're you're also one of our musical theater guys which I don't want to gloss over because you uh you very sportingly got up on stage at one point in a denim bikini 
sportingly. I believe it was his <laughs> desire. Um, no, I mean, I had to talk him into it a little bit. <laughs> a denim bikini sounds like the most uncomfortable thing you could possibly wear. It was a little uh, raw, I think is the word. Okay, um, yeah. 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 <laughs> Gotta boil that denim. Yeah, it was made but... by Layla, who had a blast making it. She was so hyped when she when I asked her to make it. She's like, can you make it? I think... Maybe it was maybe it was EK that asked her to make it. She was so hyped. But um, but yeah. So what led to that sort of is I just I auditioned for a, a show and I didn't know there's a difference between like straight theater plays and musicals. And it happened to be a musical, and I was just really bad at singing. And it was like really evident, like the first rehearsal. Like I was kind of like really back up, back up. Um, you know, tree number one ensemble and. So I sort of went out and said, okay, I want to get better at this. And I started taking voice lessons. I started kind of trying to learn how to do choreography quickly. And I just enjoyed it so much because there's a lot of shows out there um, that kind of like, I think my favorite show I've done is Evil Dead the Musical, mm. um, which combines these aspects of musical theater. But it's also, there's tons of comedy in there. And there's tons of like, it's almost like an hour and a half sketch. And we even had like blood effects where Ooh. we would like, burst there was a splash zone on the audience and at points people would die and like burst wow. on the audience and yeah. it was just so much fun um did did you give them a the courtesy of a plastic tarp as gallagher used to and oh, oh yeah too still does so we gave them uh raincoats but it was funny because wait gallagher too we could talk about that later okay <laughs> it was funny because in the first act there wasn't a lot of blood so everyone took off their raincoats and then oh, no. it all happened at the beginning oh, of act two oh, oh no and then they just be soaked yeah and yeah. unprotected but um so yeah that, that's sort protection, of protection kids so I enjoyed, uh, so I've always enjoyed musicals and I've been trying to kind of work my way into using more musicals in sketch. Um, I'm just not, I can't write music, so that's a bit of a limitation, but uh, that's where kind of Denim Man and the Denim Bra was uh, spawned. What, so if you, if you could cast yourself in your dream musical, mm -hmm. which, which one would it be? Oh, it would be uh, Something Rotten, which was a musical oh, on okay. Broadway about two years ago. Um, and then it went on tour for about a year and it was about, it was back in like the Renaissance times and there were two writers trying in England to make a big break. Um, but unfortunately they, um, this, the evil antagonist or Shakespeare was stealing all of their ideas throughout the entire show. Um, and it's, it's a musical that basically makes fun of musicals and it's, it's just a lot of fun. It's not serious at all. And it's just, yeah, so that would probably be my dream show. The idea of a musical that parodies musicals reminds me of uh, Spam a lot, a little bit. Where mm -hmm. th this is the song that goes like this, and that was anyway. Yes. What happened to my part? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's very Monty Python esque, and it actually nice. has a song called "A Musical," where it's just making fun of musicals, and it like parodies like twenty musicals in a row. <laughs> yeah, I think I need to download the soundtrack. Oh, you gotta check it out. It's yeah. it's really funny. So well, that sounds Jordan, like uh, something that would appeal to a group of people who are already interested in that stuff. But man, tough sell. <laughs> tough well, sell for the mainstream it was on middle America. Well. It, it actually, yeah, it performed really well. It actually, uh, it was on Broadway a while and went touring for a few years. It was just up against Hamilton, huh? Oh, that that yeah, that show, you know, Hamilton. <laughs> I've heard of it. I've heard of Hamilton. I've heard it's yeah. good. The yeah. kids talk about it. Yes, <laughs> yes, they do. Well, let's get to our first sketch today. Okay. 
JP, can you introduce the sketch for us? Yes, of course. So this is actually one of the very first sketches I ever saw performed live. Um, and it wasn't Rowan Atkinson who performed it. Oh, no. <laughs> I know you're all thinking, whoa. No, this was performed uh, at my high school by a group of people. And I didn't know it was Rowan Atkinson when it was performed. And it's called Fatal Beatings. I don't want to kind of ruin it all, but it's it's about a headmaster played by Rowan Atkinson talking to a student's parent about the student's recent poor behavior. Here's a clip. If I wasn't making allowances for the fact that your son is dead, he'd be out on his ear. Oh, he's dead? Yes. He's lying up there in sick bay now, stiff as a board and bright green. And this is, I fear, typical of his current attitude. <laughs> You see, the boy has no sense of moderation. One moment he's flying around like a paper kite, and the next moment he's completely immovable and beginning to smell. How did he die? All right, JP, why did you bring that sketch for us today? What I really love about this sketch is it's so, one, it up front says the joke. It says, well, he immediately says, well, you know, if your son wasn't dead, I'd be... I'd be really mad right now. And that's yeah. that's immediately the joke. That's The audience is immediately tuned into the joke, and that is played throughout the entire sketch. We get about a minute of exposition, if not more, before that comes out. There is a long build before he says, I would be more upset if your son wasn't I would dead. have him expelled. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess there is a little, like, exposition where he's sort of setting the scene, like, oh, this is a principal's office, you're the parent and whatnot. But I don't feel like, you know, apart from, I think he has some, like, um, he's like, oh, you know, the electric telephone and sort of, his, yes. uh, <laughs> he's sort of drawing some small jokes there. But like the real big, like meaty part of that bit is when he says, yeah, if he wasn't dead, I'd have him expelled. I did like that electric telephone joke. It disappointed me that it didn't get a bigger laugh from the audience because there's no such thing as a non-electric <laughs> telephone. <laughs> telephone requires electricity to work. Yeah. But it's what, even when I was watching it, that immediately struck me. And I even, like, paused it and went on this whole, like, just thought about it for about a solid 30 seconds. Like, who says electric telephone? And that's exactly why he says it, because he wants to introduce himself to you as the kind of person who would say electric telephone. And he's just like an absurd character. Oh, yes. And he just, in the fact that he's able to like, he says, oh, your son's dead. And he's able to kind of draw out the conversation with the father and be like, oh, yeah, you know, and I like the... um what is it? It's sort of that cliche comedic idea of where it's like, oh, yeah, you wouldn't believe they were stealing the books. And it's like as if that's what he misheard at one point. Yeah. Uh, he, he does that a few times with pretty good effect where he the dad says something that is clearly relating to his son, but could be perceived as open ended. And Rowan mm -hmm. Atkinson always takes the other interpretation. Exactly. And that's sort of that running gag going throughout it. Of course, the big thing that got me was the ending. And that's that's stuck with me. <laughs> and any any time I'm writing or watching a sketch, I think that is like for me like the highest level of button and just like wow. Wait, do you mean the twist or the button? So or I'm both. <laughs> I mean so can you can you kind of clarify what I, Well the the part where he says I've been yeah, yeah. The, the lead up. I've been I've been messing with you this whole time, because it seems like that's its own bit. That's the twist. But then actually, the I'd say the button, button at the end, yeah. which is also a twist. Yeah, I, yeah. it's two twists and a button. 
exactly. two twists and a button. Exactly. They have that two twist where it's like, oh, he he like leaves the audience down that twist and is like, oh, this is all a lie. The sun's of course alive, and this was just a joke. This is a funny sketch, and then just oh yeah, I wouldn't you know I wouldn't cancel school to bury that little shit, and then just blackout, and that's just so powerful. It doesn't. It just stops, and everyone knows it's yeah, done. That was a really clean sketch. Yeah, like. The the buildup was good, and then because that that just made the premise line hit e- even harder, and then from there it was just like sort of set up joke, set up joke, and then tied off in the end, and it was just so clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, what sells me on it though is is um, Rowan Atkinson's uh, like poise, kind of like takes his time, really. Even when the dad's flipping out, he's just like, yeah, he likes like stuff like he's like, yeah, I just I killed him. Yeah, it was. But does the dad ever really flip out? Like I loved it because it's so British. It's it's these very muted, like controlled reactions on both sides. Like he's dead. You don't say. Like really. Like it's (laughs) it's even at some point. Like Rowan Atkinson almost seems to be able to convince the dad that the death is the least important part of this conversation, and that it really is the behavior problems that are at issue here. It's it's phenomenal. Well, we talked about it before on this show, but the way that class plays into British comedy. And this is so clearly a parody like of the upper class and upper class mannerisms that the worst thing is misbehaving at school, not killing a student for misbehaving at school. It's, it's, it's really like, it's also very much a parody of like monstrous headmasters because there's in probably innumerable examples in British literature and film and TV of the headmaster who's just, sadistic and terrible whatnot. I think Dickens did a lot of stuff like that. And this is just that person taken to an absurd extent. Hidden behind a a wall of, if you'll excuse the phrase or the word, uh, deadpan commentary, and it's really brilliant. (laughs) And I also like how he starts to use, like, the excuse for him being dead to add like insult, like, Oh, and he's starting to smell like that's yeah. something he's controlling yeah. or there's a lot of stuff where Rowan Atkinson's character is clearly blaming the dead kid for being, dead, <laughs> which, is, which is again, kind of genius. But yeah, I didn't notice what EK, you said that there wasn't really this reaction of like, what he's dead. There was, it was just sort of like, Oh yeah. Okay. What? Yeah. Uh, I thought, th- I thought that was really interesting. And I, I think it's one of those things we, you know, I think we talk a lot in the writer's room and other places about like reacting truthfully to situations and like, given what we know, Elizabeth, did you feel like that was like a truthful reaction from the father? Is it, is it not, but it, because it's parody or? What did no, you think but about it's, that? it's supposed to be an absurdist sketch. So I think one of the rules they're clearly breaking here is that there's there's humor in a truthful reaction, but there is just as much humor in in having that absurdist reaction where you see this this glimpse of truth from the dad where he is when he initially learns that. But then that very flat affect throughout where there's a little more emotion than Rowan Atkinson. Part of the joke then becomes, at least for me, the lack of reaction or likely reaction that you would see in the dad. He is very much at the mercy of Rowan Atkinson's pace and tone in the sketch. And, you know, that's, it's just part of the absurdity of the premise. That's yeah. At no point, like you'd expect a more physical reaction from the dad, right? You'd expect him to like threaten Rowan Atkinson's character in some way. And we never get to that point. 
Yeah, he, I, was, I was kind of expecting, like, to the dad to have a huge reaction. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I first I understand, like, the first, like, couple of iterations of the joke were, like, your son is just not, like, the, the, the setup really sort of knocked the dad back on his heels, mm-hmm. you know? Like, he's like, your son isn't participating in sports. Your son's not turning in any papers. Uh, he's listless and stuff like that. And then he's like, if it weren't the fact that he's dead... I've expelled him. And the dad's like kind of thrown back like, whoa, like, did I hear that? And so there's that element of the dad kind of catching up. Mm-hmm. And then I thought there would be like a big reaction at the end. And and then um, Rowan would take out the paddle and be like, listen. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point because I love how he actually says fatal beatings within the sketch. And I'm not sure, it, I haven't actually confirmed, is that like, the main title of it. That's the title I've seen online and in like the scripts online, but you mean in the context of seeing it as a live performance, yeah. would you know that the title of the sketch was Fatal Beating? Exactly. So that's that's what it was called in the video, right? Yeah. It was and the video was the video. officially uploaded by Rowan Atkinson. Okay. So I, I would take it as being the real title of the sketch. So then there is yeah. that kind of that joke to the audience where I'm like, I'm gonna say the name of the sketch in the sketch. And yeah. that's kind and of that's, another little game. What is this? A Vin Diesel movie? Yeah, I was going to say, it's like there's a whole Family Guy joke about like <laughs> seeing the name of the title. These drug dealers represent a clear and present danger. Uh, I was actually going to say that, that when he says it, it's one of my favorite lines. That's a great I can't, movie. I can't think that... I can't think that things would have been different if you had administered a few fatal beatings. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah like, early on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, a few, more, multiple fatal beatings <laughs> for, for the same child. Great. My favorite line was, uh, was that your morbid fascination with your son's death is quite disturbing. <laughs> yeah. So how does this sketch keep going after we get what is possibly the biggest reveal of the sketch, mm-hmm. which is that the son is dead? Because that's a really tricky thing to do. I, it, it's really well executed in this example. But oftentimes we get to the big joke in a sketch and the whole thing is like, well, let's get out of here. Now, we told the big joke. How do we how do we keep going? Julian, what do you think? Yeah, there's always that element when you have a straight man sketch where there's one, there's one straight man, there's one crazy character. How do you keep the straight man there? Or how did you keep him just saying you're going, you're crazy? Uh, and I think with this one, it's just the way in which he reveals information. So we get to learn why the son was beaten and like... And how he dies. And how he dies. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's really what the, the dad, that's what kept the dad there really is because he's like, like the, his first question was like, he's dead? What happened? And he's like, well, you know, you just, uh, I, I, I paddled him and he died. You know, and he's like, you paddled him to death? And he's like, yeah, it would seem so. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think it's actually the biggest joke in the sketch. I mean, this, this one for me was, is an exercise in, uh, in really just incredible writing where you can have, it almost looks like a roller coaster with two hills or something. You have that little hill where there's the peak with the reveal of the sun being dead. But then you have the escalation that comes from Lots of little rapid-fire jokes that that build up into this much bigger hill, and that's how you get that laugh at the end with the, I would never cancel school for that little shit. <laughs> I'm like, that's the biggest joke. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I still see the first joke as being the biggest one, in partially because you could end the sketch right there. You could black out right there, and it would be fine. It would still be funny. I just thought it was interesting that it, it kept going for me after the biggest point, but that, that's a good point that maybe it's not the biggest laugh in the sketch. 
I think the biggest joke is on the audience. Like the entire sketch is just leading the audience on this journey as much as leading the dad. You're also kind of listening to this, thinking you know what's going on and thinking everything's been revealed. And then it, it actually has been revealed and being like, oh no, I was tricked. And then suddenly like, whoa, I was tricked again. And <laughs> that button, yeah. But the truth of the reaction, like it's, it, I mean, there's two layers to that, right? There's the truth and the the acting choice. And that's that's kind of, I think, the absurd element. But mm-hmm. he is asking totally real <laughs> questions and there there are things that you would want to know the answers to in that situation even if he's able to compose himself and actually get those questions out the nature of the conversation and the information that's being sought is still very real yeah exactly how did he die why did he die and yeah and the other thing is that the sketch builds tension because the dad never really gets a good straight answer i mean the only one he gets is well, why did this happen? And we find out that there's a very flimsy excuse about library books. Like that's that their <laughs> fatal beatings are administered over taking out library books without the card. But how did he die? There's well, a system. Sir. I understand that there's a the library card system. Uh, that's a great one. But there's there's this tension, and I think part of the trick is we don't even really realize it until Rowan Atkinson says, "If it were true." Mm-hmm. Right. Because that now allows us to imagine the possibility of an ending of the sketch that we stopped imagining two minutes ago when he said the kid was dead. So we are all suddenly relieved that, no, it's OK. This kid's alive. And then, boom, no, the kid is dead. And <laughs> he was lying about, you know, giving people time off of school. And I, I think that's a really weirdly subtle way of doing something in a sketch that is honestly not at all subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's that allowing you the release of tension you probably didn't even realize you were holding until that moment and then snatching that relief away from you almost immediately. Also, <laughs> there was one line too that I thought was really great where, um, sorry, it's completely off what you were just saying, but um, when you're talking about the people stealing books from the library and he's like, we, uh, we apprehended the ringleader, so... Won't be having that issue again. <laughs> so that kid's dead too. Oh, oh. <laughs> what are we sure? That's not ever said. This podcast is brought to you by the sketch comedy troupe Bad Medicine, DC's best sketch comedy about the worst of humanity. Visit badmedicinecomedy.com for info about live shows, workshops, and t-shirts for people who love comedy. With our second sketch for the day, it's Seth. Seth, can you introduce the sketch you brought today? I sure will. We're back to a bit of Fry and Laurie, and this is the second Mr. Dalliard sketch. If uh, you listened to earlier episodes, we've already talked about the first Mr. Dalliard sketch, in which Stephen Fry plays a man who runs a shoe shop who believes his shoes are prostitutes. This is a very different shop, and even, we'll talk about this later, a different Mr. Dalliard I think. He takes on some different characteristics in this one. But it starts off when um, the phrase good morning allows Stephen Fry to understand that he no longer has to spy for Mother Russia and can go home to Moscow. Here's a clip. Mm-hmm. Let me ask a different question in the same way. Um, who is this airplane for? It's for my son. It's, it's his birthday. Your son? Yes. Just your son? Yes. Mm-hmm. And when is this birthday of his? Wednesday. Yes, that's what I said. When's the day? <laughs> No, Wednesday. Are you stupid or just plain dead? 
Wednesday. Oh, you are genuinely stupid. I do apologize. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you were just being deaf. Mr. Galliard, command the earth to swallow me up. I do apologize, sir. Life must be hard enough for stupid people without tactless old bastards like that lady over there rubbing it into your face with salt widely. Mr. Galliard, I've gone peculiar now. <laughs> All right, Seth, can you tell us why you brought us that sketch today? Uh, because I absolutely love both of the Mr. Dalliard sketches. That's not been clear before. No, has it not? Okay. Uh, I, I love the idea that there is someone who is off screen, someone we never see or even hear, who is apparently used to Stephen Fry's character's eccentricities and tolerates them. There's also the other possibility, which I find equally interesting, that there is no Mr. Dalliard, that uh, Stephen Fry is simply talking to a figment of his imagination whenever he calls over his shoulder. That's certainly the sense that I get yeah. more, that Mr. Dalliard is not is not a real person. And given the... Oh, wow. I can't, I've now forgotten how to say that word. The eccentric nature... Eccentric, yes. Uh, ...of Stephen Fry's character, I would not be surprised if Mr. Dalliard did not exist. Well, he is everybody's Mr. Dalliard. <laughs> I just looked at you case face and was just like oh, I'm just what? sitting here thinking you know what's a great sketch show also in living color <laughs> <laughs> on it about the same time it's uh, just, yeah this is just a really white episode of this show <laughs> uh, it is it very is a really light, white episode pretty. of this show not that they aren't great sketches but I'm just like man you know what I'd really like to talk about right now Omi the Clown <laughs> <laughs> well next time we can talk about that because today we're talking about Mr. Dalliard. <laughs> Seth, what is the game of this sketch? What is the game of this sketch? Is uh, there a game? There is a game, and the game is confusion to the customer. That is all Stephen Fry does is to bewilder and frustrate Hugh Laurie throughout this entire sketch. Even the moments where Stephen Fry seems to be getting angry or confused himself, all he's really doing is making life harder for Hugh Laurie. And uh, life harder, and I should say more surreal for Hugh Laurie. I do love when he describes the deconstruction of a model airplane. Oh, yes. And oh, how that's, to build that. <laughs> the, yeah. The, the joy of scraping off the paint, soaking off the transfers, and taking it apart piece by piece. An accomplishment. Well, one thing that always gets me about these sketches, the Fry and Laurie sketches particularly, is that the pacing is so insane. Like, Fry is just like going off. Oh, yeah. And there's like, how do you, I don't know, like, how do you, how do you keep up? How, like, how, like, how does he, like, how does he keep up with himself? It, you know, we've talked about that. Are there, what, what were the two basically monologue sketches? The from, language The language sketches, sketches yeah. on language and on beauty. Yeah. Because he's just talking rapidly, rapidly, rapidly. And that's certainly one of the tools that they really use is that speed. Uh, it's kind of like what we talked about last week with Bruiser, um, is using that speed to create confusion. Yeah. JP? What yeah, you? what's also really interesting about it is because it's really, when you look at the sketch, it's just two people talking to each other. It's so reliant on not only the delivery and that quick delivery, but the acting in that aspect. There's not really a lot going on. Um, and we talk a lot, I mean, we've talked a lot when we're writing our own sketches about, okay, what's what's kind of the action that's keeping the sketch moving forward? Is this person like moving over here? Is this person trying to leave the room but being stopped? These two are just facing each other, talking to each other, continually pairing back and forth. And to keep that as interesting as they do is a feat on its own. It's also interesting because it's a pretty standard shopkeeper sketch, mm -hmm. except that, and I'm going to use Monty Python uh, because I think it's pretty obvious that they were influenced by Monty oh, yeah. Python. Right? <laughs> uh, the, both the cheese shop and the dead parrot sketch f uh, feature recalcitrant shopkeepers. In the cheese shop, 
the guy really just doesn't want to admit that he doesn't have any cheese. And in Dead Parrot, he really doesn't want to give back that money. In both of the Mr. Dalliard sketches, Stephen Fry is just completely in his own world and doesn't necessarily have a motive for doing what he's doing to Hugh Laurie. He's just sort of doing it. And I think that's the big difference between that and a truly standard shopkeeper sketch. And, yeah. and also, he ha- they have that very Monty Python humor where he he just puts his hand on his head and is like, oh, when my hand's on my head, it means I'm lying, basically. And it's just, it's not really explained out of anywhere. That's that's the only time they bring it up. And, and they bring it up at the end when he like puts it back on. But it's just, where'd that come from? It was just out of nowhere. Right. And well, like most of the other stuff he says. And I, that callback is great because what they're doing is they're trusting their audience to remember that they did this throwaway bit about mm-hmm. a minute and a half ago and now it's suddenly come back into focus. Yeah. yeah but it's, so, uh, it's not really a throwaway bit, though, because one of, I mean, one of the things I love about Stephen Fry is he is exceptional at working with his, and I, and I don't mean this as a negative at all, like, he is he is not a, like, he doesn't act a lot with his face. Um, he has kind of a one, one to five facial expressions that he uses in almost all of, all of his appearances, mm-hmm. but he does use his physical size and uses physical gestures very sparingly and efficiently such that they're very memorable and noticeable when he is doing something. Mm-hmm. So to your point about there's not much going on in this sketch, when he does raise his hand and put it on his head, it's st- it's very memorable and it stands out because there is so little f- other physical activity going on in that sketch. Mm-hmm. True, but he does it – at that point, he does it without any context. Like the bit later gives context to it, but at this point, he just puts his hand on his head and says this thing. So maybe not throw away. Maybe that's not right, but it's something that comes out of nowhere and then disappears again for a good length of time before it comes back. Yeah, and the whole thing is a series of bits. Like the right. Cold War thing was just a, a one giant bit. Like, I wouldn't see when there's even beats to this thing. It's just, like, just a series of consecutive bits that kind of... So how do you get the audience to just remember? Like, so, so, so like, you know, Mr. Dalliard has a, has a rifle pointed right at your head. He's going to blow your head clean off. And then he says, up, oh, see, nope, yeah. taps his head. And he, like, then, reminds the audience. Uh, and then Laurie's like, this has not been a good morning at all. And it's like, <laughs> good morning? Oh, no, Mr. Dalliard, we've been activated. <laughs> like, so, like, you have to, like, like, constantly... You're asking the audience to play, like, just play in this jungle gym of just bits. It's one of those rare sketches that I had to rewind and watch again and just sort of to try to catch everything because I'm like, oh, wait, this happened earlier. He said this. It was about the model airplanes, and I couldn't absorb it all in one go. There's also a lot of fourth wall breaking in this sketch, yes, which Fry and Laurie do a lot, yeah. I, like these little turns to the audience. And it's it's a really interesting thing because sometimes it feels like they're turning the audience to say, Look how weird this guy is. When that's kind of the whole point of like character sketches is look how weird this guy is. And yeah. I, I always I kind of wondered if that fourth wall breaking was necessary, if it really added to the sketch. You know, um, it, it's interesting because I honestly think that the weakest part of the sketch is the ending after Stephen Fry says that he's been activated again because you get that Hugh Laurie confused take to the camera. And you get that Stephen Fry sort of condescending take to the camera. And then the sketch is just sort of over. Yeah. So in this case, 
I don't think it was necessary. I don't think it, it helps us understand the sketch. I don't think it helps end the sketch. I think they needed something after that or something different than that to really, like, hit their marks at the end. Did they film this in front of a studio audience, though? I yes. don't know. Okay. Yes. Uh, There's a live yes. audience. Yeah. So I, how much of that informs how they're ending a performance like that? Because it's something, it's very easy in the context of a video to just, boom, that's your edit and you're right. done. But if you have a live audience there, you might need something to signal to them that it's over. I mean, he's walking out the door, obviously. I just I just wonder how much of that, just like the technical execution in front of an audience like that informs how you end it. I don't have an answer to that question. I'm just putting it out there into the ether. No, but I, I think it's a good question. We could all use some ether. Old timey drugs. Yeah. Uh, I I don't I don't have an answer to it either. But I think you're right. I think it it definitely did affect the way they ended the sketch. And maybe for the studio audience, it came off a little better. Also, it could be like just the just the time in which they were the show was on. You know, like the that style of comedy. Where you wink at the audience is kind of like when the show was shown. The, the this aired in 1995, the 90s. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sort of made me question if, like, if he says that, oh, I've been activated. If that entire conversation was really just pre-programmed. Wait, into what his year did you think it was? Yeah, no, I, I thought it was like in the like the 50s. <laughs> Whoa. So the show, no, the not, first not series of the show aired in 1989, okay. the second in 1990, the third in 1992, the fourth in 1995. Yeah, like when they first got like color, they started airing stuff in color is when I thought. That How old do you think 60s. Hugh Laurie <laughs> is? Oh, Stephen Fry is still alive. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're both, both alive. Alive. Oh, okay. You might remember a show called House that ran for many years. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that was him. Yeah, he became a doctor. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's that it's, was, uh, that was Hugh Laurie. Laurie. Yeah. Well, yeah. fuck. Doing his best American dialect. Okay. Yeah. That show bothered me for a lot of reasons. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Every other, if you we'll talk about episode. it on House Nerds. <laughs> <laughs> you watched one episode of House, you'd seen every episode of House. Well, that, I mean, that's true for a lot of procedural. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. sketch comedy. Right. What's going on with that? <laughs> so, Seth, how does this sketch, talking about the time period in which it, made, it was made, they have these Cold War jokes yeah. a number of years after the Cold War ended. Yeah. So can you talk about like how this sketch is a reflection of the time that it's made in? I'm not sure that it's a reflection of the time that it's made in. I think it's more a reflection of the time they grew up in. There's a fair amount of Cold War stuff in Fry and Laurie. So if you haven't seen a bit of Fry and Laurie, I would advise you to go watch it. I'm going to get a little bit deeper into it. So if you're not familiar with these sketches, I apologize. But here we go. There's a long-running sketch uh, that involves Tony Murchison, who is an agent of MI6, and a man he only refers to as Control, talking about spy business. And it really is just this Cold War thing, because the final Tony Murchison sketch involves the fall of the USSR. They're basically like Stephen Fry tells them, the USSR doesn't exist anymore, so you don't have a job, and I'm really sorry, but we have to let you go. It's... it's a, it's it's a firing sketch with spies and that makes it kind of brilliant but they play with they play with that stuff a lot and i think one of the reasons that they did it in the fourth season this particular sketch in the fourth season with that particular cold war premise involved is because at that point it would have been observed to everybody it was 6 years after the fall of the iron curtain 
no one's really thinking about the USSR as a going concern anymore. But you have this agent that's apparently been deep undercover for a very long time, as he asks after the health of Comrade Stalin. Uh, <laughs> 27 years, he said. 27 years, that's right. So actually, maybe we ought to take a look at that, because Stalin died in what, 48, 49? Yes, so Stalin would have been dead long before. <laughs> right, yeah. So this is perhaps the sketch is meant to take place in the mid-70s, except nothing else would clue us into that. That was That's the one clue we get. The wardrobe looks a little mid-century. Does it? Okay, because I honestly can't tell. Uh, yeah, that's why I thought it was uh, filmed in, you know, the 1920s or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> that's why. I think the British are just a bit drab. You, you keep um, making it. You keep going no, backwards a, in time. Really, you thought they were dressed poor. No, I didn't think it was drab. Well, I drab, actually, I just mean in, like, simple colors. Like, it's the colors are boring of what they're wearing. That's what I meant by drab. Drab, stylish. You know, whatever. I we can differ on that. No, I, I mean, I actually thought they were very. The dress was very polished. <laughs> yeah, so it's. I guess we know who doesn't shop at Brooks Brothers, and it's Andy. <laughs> Straight up. <laughs> I also do not shop at Brooks Brothers. <laughs> shop uh, at vapor95.com. <laughs> One of the other things I wanted to talk about, because clearly we've mined all this Cold War stuff. There's nothing to bring out of that topic anymore. Do you think Uh, you could still make Cold... Like, if we were to write a sketch as Bad Medicine today about the Cold War, how do you think it would play? uh, I think right now it would be too topical. Yeah. (laughs) I I think think if we wrote a Cold War sketch today, people would immediately draw comparisons with uh, the political situation with Russia, which I think would be fair. You think millennials would, I mean, I, I say that as a millennial, but as like an elder millennial. Do you think like a, an audience of 25-year-olds, JP, looking at you, <laughs> do you think they'd get it? Do you get to the Cold War in school? Yeah, definitely. I have no idea. Definitely. Okay, yeah. I got, I got to the Cold War in high school. Yes, you're no, I know, but it's. A, a I mean, I, like, I remember growing up, like, I can still go and find the old set of encyclopedias in my parents' house from, like, 1987 where, like, Russia isn't even an entry. It's just USSR. So, I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I just wonder if it's different being, like, having it be a touchstone like you were actually alive, but you guys really... Because you were born, what, 90? I was born in 92, but I also grew up in Europe, so we talked about Europe a lot more. Okay. So, like, the Cold War was a huge topic that went on for, like, a semester. Yeah. But what about you? You, you, I was born in 1991. Um, Yeah, we, I mean, uh, certainly covered the Cold War. I I think, I don't think it would be irrelevant to people, I mean, born, I think people would pick up on all the clues. People know the names. People know, I mean, in school, you're going to cover the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Uh, Probably McCarthyism, too. Yeah, exactly. So all of these elements of the Cold War, I think, I mean, it was like, and you can talk about how the Korean War, the Vietnam War, if you studied those in school, you probably talk about how they're a function of the Cold War. And and to be fair, Domino Theory. Atomic Blonde, which is a Cold War spy movie set in Berlin before the fall of the wall, came out a year or two ago and uh, did pretty well. So. Uh, great, or even the great soundtrack. The, re- the, yeah. the Man soundtrack. from Uncle, the, oh, that's right. the remake oh, of yeah. that, which was excellent. Yeah. Um, I, I think the Cold War is alive and well in popular culture. Um, and as Seth said, it's still relevant. Um, it's a hot topic right now. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was, I was more just curious the- about like the, the subtleties of it. Like if you, I mean, it's one thing if you talk about like the big ticket concepts. I don't know. Just went down a rabbit hole there. Never mind. Let's pull out of it. All right. It's time for the end of the show. 
JP, as the guest, can you come up with a rating system for how we rate these sketches today? I mean, I think I have to go with Beans because Mr. Bean... Rowan Is that Atkinson. what we did the last time we had a Mr. Bean sketch? I don't remember. Oh, it might have been. You've used Beans great. before? No, I don't know. I, I, I can't quite remember, oh. so we're going oh, with it. Beans. Okay. I, I just beans. remember Isaiah got really mad because he didn't realize until after the fact that when we did the cut to the clip thing that it was all just silence. Oh, except that's for the right. And then he had to do a little ballyhoo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, so Beans, so why don't, you, why don't you start us off? How many beans would mm-hmm. you give Fatal Beatings? So I like to rate out of 10 because it's easier. Because mm-hmm. um, like you grew up in Europe, the metric system. Better. Yeah, right. yeah. That too. Yeah. more of an out of 12 guy um, myself. I mean, it's a logarithmic <sighs> bean system. <laughs> it's a logarithmic. So I, Fatal Beatings is honestly probably my favorite sketch, so I have to give it like 9.5 to 10 beans. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot of beans. Julian, how many beans would you give? This sketch. Yeah, so I, I really like what Seth said about how this sketch, you don't even realize there's so much tension until Mr. Bean sort of says, like, this was all a joke. And so then he was like, you didn't realize that there was all this tension. So I'm going to give this sketch the release of nine farts you didn't know you had. I can see the Bean connection. Yeah. That, was, yeah. that was Almost poetic. That was weirdly almost poetic. <laughs> Julian, I, I don't know how you did it. Seth, how many beans would you give Fatal Beatings? Uh, well, I think this sketch is full of beans. Anyway, uh, yes. I just wanted to make a dad joke. Um, I really like this sketch. I think it's tight. I think it's well written. Uh, I think it hits all of the marks it intends to hit beautifully. I'm going to have to go with JP on this one and give it a 9.5 or 10 beans. It's very good. Elizabeth? Um, you know, I appreciate the technical skill that goes into creating a sketch like this, both in terms of writing, acting, staging. It's so precise. It's, it's so good. I just, I'm going to give it like a pan of really slow roasted lima beans in a red sauce that's just like seasoned really well. And that's, you know, you don't even need meat with that. It's just a dish on its own, it can be an entree, it can be a side. It's just great. And I'll give it 10 beans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, just checking in, you wouldn't rather use kidney beans in lima? <laughs> just asking. In a red sauce, maybe yeah. kidney beans, but. Right. You mean like as a chili? Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, it's not I like a chili. It's like kidney. because it, it's like a slow cooked uh, kidney bean or something like that. Mm. Um, and it takes on the the flavor of the sauce, oh. and it becomes this just really rich. What's the word that you use in food stuff to describe like a meaty flavor? Umami. Umami, umami, umami is yeah. Is one yeah. of the savory. That's savory flavor. Savory. It yeah. takes on like a savory, hearty flavor. All right. Yeah. All right. I'll get you a recipe. I was going to say, if you ever made it, you can. it's a Greek. No, it's a Greek dish. Okay. It's, it's great. It's right. great stuff. And let's talk about. The second Mr. Dalliard sketch. I'm not sure there's a good name for this. I, it's the second Mr. Dalliard sketch. Uh, on YouTube, you can find it at Mr. Dalliard. We've been activated. Yes. Um, Seth, why don't you start us off on this and tell us a little more about Mr. Dalliard? Because I feel like there was more to get to. There was more. Uh, the thing I wanted to point out about Mr. Dalliard in this sketch, as opposed to the first Mr. Dalliard sketch, is that Mr. Dalliard in this sketch is responsible for Stephen Fry's character's behavior. There are several times when Stephen Fry calls back to Mr. Dalliard and says that he's, well, I forget what it says, I've gone, I've gone strange again or I've gone something like that. 
as though Mr. Dalliard is there to rein him back. So if Mr. Dalliard is imaginary, now he's become like sort of a uh, a conscience of sorts to Stephen Fry's character. And I just thought that was interesting. Now, none of this has anything to do with beans. That's okay. That's okay. (laughs) Uh, But I'm going to say, now this one, because I don't think it's quite as tight as Fatal Beatings, I'm only going to give seven out of ten beans. But the seven beans are... Green beans prepared like haricot uh, vert, the French way. They're very crisp, just a little bit of salt, a little bit of butter. They're fantastic, but there's only 7 out of 10. Well, you got to pick your own rating for this sketch. Uh, I'm not the one who rated <laughs> not it usually. Farts, Julian. That's really? generally not how we do it. Yeah. Uh, we what? change it this time. Haven't we always done that? No, Julian, you've always done that. <laughs> we, oh. we, we, pick, we pick the guest picks a rating system, and we rate both sketches on that scale. Oh, it's what we did last week. I mean, let's, it's a it's a sketch comedy podcast that only like forty people listen to. Apparently, forty people, uh, thirty of whom are in Australia or the UK. We're oh, huge in Japan too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. We try Julian, some how many beans would you give this then? sketch? It's a tough one because I don't know. Because I I mean I think it's funny. I just don't. I'm just not. A, I just don't prefer like these like really talky, really talky sketches, talking head kind of sketches. But there's some great lines in there where Fry is like, when, when a man says good morning, uh, we put on our hats, detonate our families, and we go off to Moscow. And that's like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> um, so I'm going to give it a slow burn fart where it kind of <laughs> like you think like you may have singed some hairs. <laughs> Yeah. What are you eating? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of beans. Uh, apparently beans with peppers of some kind. Perhaps yeah, ghost peppers. So. I don't know. I guess so. JP, how many beans did you give this sketch? I'm I'm going to uh, agree with Seth on this. I think it's it's solid. It's tight. It's not quite as like, I feel like there's more potential for laughs. And we talked about the ending too. So I'd give it a strong, crisp seven beans. I would also give it seven beans. It's The sketch is really tight to me but unfocused yeah and so the writing is really well structured but i don't feel like i could pick out the main idea of right. this it sketch doesn't, it doesn't really build yeah it do, yeah exactly yeah. It, yeah. it doesn't really build there's not really a perspective right so I, I i think on the strength of the jokes and the writing six and a half seven but overall around there yeah elizabeth i think in the spirit of the sketch and veering from one seemingly unconnected idea to the next, I am going to give it three beans. In but, a salad? But only because I just pulled up the New York Times headline, and apparently those teenage murder suspects have been found dead in Manitoba. All right. <laughs> Canadian downer news here. <laughs> What's oh, we, a downer? Oh, apparently, they're dead. I didn't know. We, they were on a murder spree, Seth. We are a true crime podcast. We can attract so many more followers now. <laughs> That's brilliant. I just changed the game, guys. We're now talking about teenage murderers in Canada. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another episode of Sketch and Herds. Is three people a spree? A special thanks to our guest, <laughs> JP. Not taking a chance on your last name again for being, so you say it. McCallier. McCallier. That's almost it. Uh, for being a guest on today's show, uh, JP, where can our listeners find you online or out in the world? Well, you can find me on Bad Medicine's website, Bad Medicine Comedy. Oh, that's a good website. And uh, I'm, I'm also, if you're in the D.C. area and see some musicals going on, I might be in them. So, And if I'm not, I'll know people in them, so check it out. 
<laughs> JP also bears a striking resemblance to my younger brother, Robbie. That's good. So keep that in mind. We'll put that. We'll put a link to my little brother's face in the liner notes. Robbie has been in a bad medicine sketch before. Yeah. Cool. Please like, share, and subscribe. <laughs> if you uh, know of a great sketch we haven't discussed, please send it to us. We'd love to break it down. Uh, you can find out more about Sketch Nerds and Bad Medicine at badmedicinecomedy.com slash sketchnerds, where you can also find links to the sketches that we discussed today. You can find this podcast and previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. For JP McCallier. Nice. Julian Morgan. Nice. <laughs> Seth Alcorn. Nice. And Elizabeth Kemp. Hey. I'm Andy Weld. Thanks for listening to Sketch Nerds. This episode was produced by Isaiah Hedden and recorded in Washington, D.C. The closing music tracks were provided by SoundtrackForEverything.com. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act, Fair Use Exemption, for criticism and commentary. The Sketch Nerds podcast is brought to you by the sketch comedy group Bad Medicine, D.C.'s best sketch comedy about the worst of humanity. For showtimes, videos, and funny t-shirts, please visit BadMedicineComedy.com. <laughs>